This is True Builders. I'm Josh Withers, co-founder and managing director of the True Platform, a suite of talent-related software and services. I'll be talking to founders, executives, and investors about building companies, the ups and downs, and lessons learned. Our goal here is to share these insights with the other builders out there. Let's go. Julio, so good to see you. It's great to see you, Josh. Thanks for having me. I was looking forward to this because I think uh, most of our conversations happened back when you know you you were busy at GitHub trying to fill some roles, and I was trying to fill them with you. And you know, this is a lot less stressful, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that usually, you know, by the time that you reach out for help on a hire, it's uh, you've tried something internally, potentially. There's some crisis. Yeah. You're late to something. So yeah, definitely good to good connect outside of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I've enjoyed this. You know, people are like, oh, is that nerve wracking, you know, doing the podcasting? I'm like, actually, it's way easier than, you know, dealing with search updates and things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, more fun and more fun. Exactly. And Julio, one of the other reasons why I was looking forward to chatting is, is you just bring a lot of, I think, unique perspectives to the table. I mean, you know, first of all, you're the first person I think I've spoken with that has a, a legal or corporate counsel background. But you know, you've also spent time in iconic companies, you know, Yelp, and then you know, really that that long run at GitHub from early days through its acquisition. And I know you served there as a chief business and operations officer and also on the board. And really, that's where I'd like to start, frankly. I mean, I think a lot of companies and managers are grappling with and rethinking how to manage, how their organizational structure should be set up, just given everything that's happening and you know, do we do hybrid? Do we do remote? Do we not? Right. Now, I know GitHub experimented with a bunch of different things and, and started off somewhat, uh, maybe infamously with a kind of flat management model. And I'd love to hear you talk about like what that looked like in practice in the early days for maybe those that aren't familiar with that. And then we can kind of talk about lessons learned from there. So I think it's a great question. GitHub, it's interesting to think back that even at the time of the Microsoft acquisition, when we thought that we'd really grown a lot, changed a lot from the early days, we were still over 80, 85% remote as a company. And certainly at the beginning, as you said, it was something that we really spent a lot of time thinking about. I think that GitHub was always very unique insofar as it thought a lot, and maybe not as much, but close about its company culture, its company structure, how it was doing what it was doing almost as much as what it was that we were working on. And I think that there are pitfalls with that. I think that there's a lot of benefits that we also got from it. One of the things I think as we grew as a company was that a one-size-fits-all approach simply didn't work for the company at scale. So when I joined GitHub, it was still, I think, right around, right under 100 employees. We were beginning to flirt with that number. And 95% of the company was distributed. I think the other thing that we didn't really focus as much on at the time was that the company was also probably 90, 95% homogeneously R&D engineers, technical employees. And as we scaled, we were just apply, I think, everything that we've been doing for an engineering department and applied that to, okay, now we've got an HR team, now we've got a legal team, now we've got a sales team, and just assumed 
that everyone was going to work in the same way that that first wave of employee worked using the same tools that that first wave of employee was using and with a lot of the kind of management style and operational style that we used to get to that stage. And I think that one of the learnings looking back at that was that even if that was okay as a default, we did not have enough room and flexibility, interestingly, to question those assumptions as the company was growing. And like, you know, does this still make sense? And that we went through a certain amount of, I think euphemistically, we might be able to say inefficiency as we were growing more kind of uh, colloquially. There was just a lot of pain and friction that went along with having to retrain people to work in a completely different way, to talk with one another in a completely different way, and we're maybe reinventing mousetraps over and over and over and over again when we maybe didn't need to do that. So I'd say that by the time that we were a much larger company, meaning several hundreds of employees, we were okay with certain departments making their own rules with respect to how they were going to work, including whether or not they were going to be distributed. I, uh, one of the biggest examples I think that when I think back was that the sales organization, once we started building out the sales org intentionally with growth in mind, that organization operated, and this isn't going to be rocket science to anyone, very differently than how the engineering organization operated. Mm-hmm. And that where companies, I think, run into trouble these days is trying to apply a one-size-fits-all approach. Okay, you know, we're going distributed, we're going remote. What we call hybrid, I think, is the right answer, but that's worth probably double-clicking into with respect to what we actually mean by that. And what I think I see working is being very clear with your workforce as to what the company default might be or, uh, you know, what what the expectations are, I think, for teams but then allowing for enough flexibility for line managers, certainly, but even at a higher level from a departmental leader standpoint, allowing them the flexibility to create something that feels authentic and functional for their particular use case and for their particular department. And how that all gets wrapped up into the overall culture of the company is ultimately, I think, the part of the decision-making that operators and executives are tasked with making and that they should be making. But a one-size-fits-all approach is probably not the way that things should be working moving forward. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I remember, I think I met with GitHub back before you joined, maybe 2011 or so, and it was for a HR search. What I was thinking was like a VP of HR. It's like, no, 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 we don't do that here. It's like, what, what do you mean? And I found it to be interesting and a fun sort of thought exercise on my part. But I was also thinking about how do I sell this in the market? And so I sort of push back a little bit. I didn't win the search. <laughs> Maybe that's why, but that's fine. We ended up working together later, but it just got me thinking about, okay, how do companies make these decisions and, you know, structure these things? And and I could see how allowing, you know, sort of a flat kind of more autonomous environment can lead to a lot of creativity and ideas, but also, as you said, sort of, you know, maybe you have multiple, you know, projects that are sort of overlapping, you're, you know, and there's other inefficiencies that come with that. You touched on it a little bit when you were talking about how do we sort of re-examine what we're doing as a as a company as we go along. I heard you talk about in another interview somewhere having a North Star and, and alignment to values and and also just looking past the sort of Kool-Aid. I think you use that phrase. You know, we all sort of 
drink the Kool-Aid of the vision of, of where we're headed, but then, you know, how do you sort of step back and, you know, re-examine the mission, the values, how they've been operationalized? You know, did you have a formal cadence or way to do that? Or is this just something you kind of had to remind yourself of over and over again? I think that we were pretty good about having regular executive offsites, company offsites, et cetera, and being pretty open with the workforce and getting feedback from a lot of different places with respect to what was working, what wasn't working. Were there things in the employee handbook that were vestiges from a different time that no longer you know, served or, or were relevant? I think that that can easily become the sort of thing that takes up a lot of time, I think, for operators. So minimizing that level of kind of navel gazing, I do think is important. But a once a year annual exercise, I think, is completely within the scope. Creating themes for a year. So like not changing necessarily, you know, what your core values are, what the core cultural touchstones are for your company on a year to year basis. That also doesn't feel optimal. You know, what, what's happening at the company that every year we've got a completely different North Star, as, as you were saying, but putting an inflection on a different, let's say, value, you know, if you've got a whatever, like, oh, maybe this is the year that we focus on shipping a little bit more, more action oriented. Whereas maybe we don't, uh, do we have product market fit in this area? Maybe it is time to take a step back and really think about the customer, think about what we're doing, becoming a little bit more meta in that way. And I think that that type of an annual exercise is important. I think it's important to almost as a morale thing also. I think it's really easy over the course of a year to get lost in the projects, to get lost in the crises, the highs, the lows, all that kind of stuff that's going on. And just, I know that for me, I got a lot of value and a lot of reinvigoration from just a short offsite with the team coming together, reminding ourselves of what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I think that we got better as a company in being able to facilitate. You know, you hear about the, like that job as a facilitator, bringing in outside experts, et cetera. You sit through enough and spend enough money, I think, on kind of like outside consultants coming in and, and facilitating a lot of these conversations. Ultimately, just learning from that, what are these questions that kind of resonated with me? What are the questions that resonated and that elicited good conversation among the table? And just repeating that, uh, I think, is a relatively good approach as opposed to framing an annual um, intervention, you know, that needs to be happening and kind of just it takes on a different it takes on a different tone. And I think just kind of weaving that into the fabric of your company is, uh, is an important exercise. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think, you know, obviously, as companies grow, the vision does shift and maybe the roles needed in the team shift. I know, like, for, for example, at, at GitHub, and this is not exclusive to you, a lot of companies deal with this, but you had such a great brand and reputation with individual developers and that community was incredible. Then all of a sudden, you're moving into the enterprise and having to deal with, you know, IBM or whoever. And that's very different, right? And so aligning around the work and getting people excited about building enterprise grade solutions, you know, is, is probably tough for people who sort of focused on a, maybe a more fun developer community to start, right? I think it's right. I think at GitHub, though, one of the nice things that we were able to create was a flywheel between the weirdness that frankly was one of the main reasons why we had so much developer credibility, right? So that if we just look at 
the engineering space specifically. And I don't know that this is true in different business verticals. I imagine that it, it probably isn't true. That if my primary constituent is bankers or mm. financiers or salespeople, whatever it happens to be, I think that the culture of the company maybe is less relevant, more relevant. It toggles. Engineers and developers want to work with tools and with companies that intuitively understand them and that they think are a reflection really of themselves and behaviors that, that they themselves have. And so I think that the weirdness that GitHub had in kind of operating for so long, and we made it several hundred employees where the company was generally working and organizing as a sort of open source project itself, that there was no question and there is no question in my mind that that level of, uh, of work and culture helped to then go and sell, not sell, but like to acquire developer users. And if they were developers by night, working on GitHub and some kind of open source project as hobbyists or whatever it happened to be, they were probably developers by day who were bringing GitHub to work you know, with them. And that we were able to create this sort of virality between the consumer side of the business and the enterprise side of the business that is difficult to create, but that once you get that flying, then you've really got something magical. And again, it's funny, like it's kind of like where you put that accent on who you are. When we started selling more to the enterprise, I think that we were surprised initially by the fact that the CIO at public company X was not as enamored of our flat structure, et cetera. They weren't <laughs> right. against it. They weren't against it. It just was not relevant to her, to him, or whatever it happened to be. What is the ROI on this product? What is the efficiency that I'm going to be able to realize? And we were able to tell that story, but it wasn't something that we intuitively had at the beginning. I always felt very jealous of Twilio's slogan, um, you know, ask your developer. Ask, yeah, yeah, right. Ask your developer. That was what we would lead with at GitHub. And when we started selling to different sizes of companies, and certainly when we moved out of the United States, we had a lot of growing pains associated with the fact that our reputation alone was not interesting enough to kind of get us through the door or to get a decision maker to do that. So I think it's a fine line that companies end up having to walk, but I tend to be of the mind that a little eccentricity in your company is probably not a bad thing, provided that you're able to back it up with that constellation of things that normal, you know, quote unquote, kind of normal companies also have. So I need the white sheet, I need the white paper, I need to be able to kind of speak to a lot of the business metrics and KPIs that that buyer is going to be held to when they make the decision to buy this or use this product. But if you're also able to kind of buttress that with a kind of like weirdo culture that engineers around the world love, or that you think that you've got something that distinguishes you, then I do think that that is valuable. And that if anything, if I look back over the last 10 years, I think it's more valuable now. There's just so much competition out there. Everyone has gotten sophisticated with respect to SEO and email marketing channels, and everybody's getting seemingly pitched by any number of different widgets that do the same thing. And that beyond simply kind of price cutting or whatever your seat license is going to be, what are the distinguishing factors that are going to position your company uh, in a unique light 
relative to some of your competition, I think that some of that cultural element and that mission-based element can and should be a part of that go-to-market. And I think that that's only going to continue to accelerate as younger, younger generations of employees continue now to kind of get promoted into the managerial and the buying ranks at these companies. You know, by the time that we get to Z-Gen procurement managers within IBM, I have to believe that they're taking different things into account than what everyone kind of has been taking into account at this point, provided that, again, they're not going to be like, you know, why are you spending 2x on this tool? Well, you know, it's a cooler thing. Like, that, you know, that's not going to fly. But I do think that there's a role for it. So one of the other things I was thinking about, Julio, when I was thinking about sort of what would have been the things that you sort of left behind from the early days of your structure and, and sort of kept as you, as the business scaled, I sort of remember a comment that you made in another interview where you talked about being a, a GitHub employee who happens to be an attorney versus an attorney who happens to work at GitHub. And I sort of like that approach, but can you explain that mindset maybe and how it manifests in your work and how you think about things? Sure. It's an interesting question. The Every job that I ever had before GitHub, one of the primary and even unquestioned to the point where I never had thought about this before GitHub in any kind of a way was that my function preceded my form, in so to speak. And roughly, I was an attorney who happened to work at company X doing attorney things rather than an employee of company X who happened to be an attorney, right? Mm -hmm. And inverting that structure, which GitHub kind of forced me to invert the way that I thought about that, which was very much an onboarding that drilled into you, this is what it means to work at GitHub. This is what we believe in. This is how we work. This is how we communicate. These are the tools that we use to communicate with one another. This is how we make decisions. The level of investment that GitHub put into that early onboarding process, and really that continued almost indefinitely while you were there and was reinforced throughout your life as a GitHub employee, was unlike anything that I had ever experienced before. And that for new managers, for new entrepreneurs, when I talk about this way of thinking with them, one of the things that it does right off the bat is that it acts as a forcing function for new entrepreneurs to have to put pen to paper on, okay, well, if I think of myself as a company X employee first, rather than a lawyer or a business intelligence person or a recruiter or whatever it happens to be at this company, what is that? Like, what are those things? So I think it's at least as good of a forcing function to get to some values, company traits, onboarding materials, your employee handbook. All of these things are helped by sitting down and thinking about, okay, like, what does it mean to be a GitHub employee, a Shades employee, a Google employee? And I think it goes a long way towards helping new managers, but really, I think managers across the life cycle document their company culture. I think it also fosters a sense of commonality across departments that later facilitates the sort of cross-functional work and communication that's necessary to operate at peak efficiency, particularly when you're going through 
radical change, hyper growth, whatever it happens to be. I know that there are lots of corporations that if you're in one team and you talk to somebody from a different team, it's like you have nothing in common, completely different uh, vocabularies in some instances. They're using different programs, different tool sets, different software across the board. And that really does get helped by, again, kind of thinking of yourself as an employee of the company first. And that was not anything that I'd ever, that I'd ever thought of. You know, as a young business or as a, I think as a, even a larger competitive business at scale, from an attrition standpoint, more and more, I think that the workforce sees a lot of their employers as fungible. And the more, and I think that you talk to a lot of incoming workers who are almost looking at certainly tech and stock options or whatever, I think, I think it does incentivize this type of thinking that you're adding to a portfolio, right? Like I want to go and work at this place, I'll vest for a couple of years, and then I can go and diversify my set of equity, and I can go work at a different shop and work there for a couple of years. And it ultimately does end up becoming, I think, a little bit transactional in a way that is detrimental, both certainly to the company by way of attrition uh, at, at its most obvious, but in more you know, subversive, I think, cultural elements as well. Also, if there's that kind of a transactional relationship between employee and manager and company. And I think that for the employee, it also leads to a lower morale at the end of the day. If you're not part of a uh, of a company that you can kind of believe in on some level, and I think that we might be getting into this a little bit later, I've always looked at work as an opportunity for improvement in some kind of a way. You know, I think that there are we spend so much time at work and with our coworkers that if there's a way of finding a common thread of of that pulls you through and that kind of gets you difficult moments, difficult conversations at work, and that you all can look at, at each other across the table and ultimately say, okay, like we're all working for the betterment of this company and for the ultimate success of what we're going after and to achieve our goals, I think that all of that really does get improved by getting people to believe in themselves as an employee of the company first and foremost, rather than than something else. Yeah, it resonates with me, well, generally speaking, but then also I had a, a recent conversation with a family member who actually happens to be in the legal side of things and is kind of senior counsel. She was with a, a very large public company that everyone knows. And I think the role became sort of a cog in the machine and sort of less interesting. And she got an offer from sort of a, a little bit more of an up and comer that really wanted counsel to help with sort of some business decisions and setting up some new directions for the company. And it sounded very exciting to me anyway. And it's like, well, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if I want to leave because I have these stock options and, you know, this company's not going anywhere. I was like, is that really what you want to like? focus on and have be your sort of, this is why I'm here. And, and, and in the end, she decided no, right? And she made the move. So I think it speaks to what you're talking about. So Well, you make a really good point there also, which is that I think whether you're a lawyer, and let, let's stick with that example, your work product is not going to be as good as it could be, I think, if you're not thinking of it in this way. It will be less tailored than it needs to be It'll be, uh, you know, taking the wrong risks uh, or not taking the right risks, et cetera. 
Uh, and if you're really thinking about putting yourself in the shoes of what does a company employee think here? I think that a lot of businesses are investing tens of thousands, millions of dollars into building out internal marketing departments, which at a different time, you probably would have been using an outside agency for internal recruiting departments where you might just be using a true, et cetera, in a different world, internal legal departments. You know, you look at Google, for instance, where it's hundreds and hundreds of employees and hundreds and hundreds of lawyers, rather, that's an internal law firm. And that if they're not thinking of themselves as Google employees, first and foremost, then I'm not sure that you're getting as much bang for your investment buck in building out a tailored law firm within your company, then you might, then I might as well just kind of outsource that work. So what is the distinction for me as an employee versus me as a contractor? Like, what does that mean in terms of my relationship to the business, my emotional investment with the business, but then also my ability to kind of do the best work possible I can't do that if it's just a transactional fly by night, I think, type of a relationship. Uh, if I'm always looking for this next thing, like I do believe that. And so I think that that's, uh, it just helps orient yourself, even as a mental exercise. How, how would I be doing my job differently if I were thinking about it in this way? And then just seeing whether there's any daylight there and any daylight that does come up, I think is worth examining and seeing whether there's a room for kind of self improvement in your job. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect, and and it actually reminds me of another conversation I had recently, and actually a point you made as well in a in a different conversation. But I'll I'll tie that all together. So I spoke with uh, Mail Gavitt. She's a t- CEO of TechStars. We did a podcast recently, and she wrote a book, and then talked a lot about the need for more empathy and how a lot of the traits that are publicly praised in leadership and around the tech industry can actually be a negative in her mind with some of these qualities. I heard you talking about you know a, a need for a higher level of, of social and emotional intelligence and that being a, a big piece of, of collaboration and org building. I think this kind of gets to what you're talking about and getting people invested and in, in sort of what you're trying to do as a team. I think you even said we should bring more love into it. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing that comes to mind is authenticity, right? If your leadership team is such that rolls its eyes when empathy's brought up or, you know, name some other thing, like if you're rolling your eyes behind closed doors, then I would recommend that that company not go out and lead conversations with empathy at its forefront as a value that the company has. And I think that a lot of businesses today feel that out of necessity, they need to be prioritizing and speaking to certain terms, certain things in the industry that they hear about without actually doing the harder work and the more time-consuming work, which is chewing on that concept and metabolizing and seeing what it means within the context of your particular organization and the culture of your particular company, and whether your leadership team is going to be able to authentically and credibly uh, embody right those whatever it happens to be, whether it's empathy, whether it's a DNI initiative, whether it's a growth initiative, whatever it happens to be, I would say that if you're not able to kind of like you know, believe it, then you shouldn't be going out and espousing it as a value to your workforce. And that might seem commonsensical, but I, I, I'm not sure that it is given the, the way that a lot of companies are behaving these days. 
I've also heard and have sympathy for business leaders who push back on talk of empathy or community, let alone viewing one's coworkers as family, right? Like, I think that there's a totally reasonable pushback on these things where, you know, this isn't your family. These are, these are your coworkers. And it's okay to have empathy. But at the end of the day, like we're here to increase shareholder return, et cetera. So why are we even, why are we even talking or thinking about these things? Um, and I know that early on at GitHub, you know, you reminded me, it's been a long time since I thought about this. Early on at GitHub, one of the key company values that we had in the handbook was that we optimized for employee happiness. And this seemed very obvious to us. It felt um, an intrinsic part of the culture was that we wanted you to be happy. And I think that the handbook at the time would back up that statement with, you know, if you feel like you need to do some continuing learning, if you want to go to a conference, if you want to do something that's going to make you happier at work, we want to hear about it because that's one of our top priorities. And then you fast forward five years after that, and there's a lot of pushback from usually new layers of management who were coming in and who were having optimized for happiness being quoted chapter and verse to them by a longtime employee as a reason for not wanting to do some behavior for work on some project or do something. And I think that while one of the nuances that we ended up adding over time was that we did want to optimize for employee happiness as long as it was being balanced again, company success, team success, company goals, whatever it happened to be. And that it's very easy, again, to kind of get in this black and white world. Are you doing the one or are you doing the other? There are edge cases. And I would say that at those edge cases that they're pretty, they're usually pretty easy to adjudicate. Much more interesting are the nuanced kind of cases where at the end of the day, your company culture is what's going to drive the decision to provide X extra amount of leave or to help out an employee who might be going through some kind of an issue or who's asking for some kind of non-legal accommodation or whatever it happens to be. So I do think that that was missing early on, was this sense of, okay, like at the end of the day, what's in the best interest of the company? And within that framework, how is it that we can also optimize for employee happiness? On the issue of empathy, these are really hard, challenging issues on how to be an empathetic human being, period, in society today. And that we somehow, I think, want to cut corners when it comes to a business and just assume that everybody knows even what that means. So I think that one of my first kind of pieces of advice to a company that is putting together its, its company values or its mission statement or trying to figure out how it's operating is to really double click and define what does empathy even mean within a professional, what is a professional context? And I think that if you're sitting down and, you know, before you send that email, trying to put yourself in the position of the recipient and thinking about, well, why did they make this decision? Or why did they say this in the meeting? Or what is it about, you know, what's going on? I do think that that level of intentionality and just kind of hitting pause to put yourself in the position of your coworkers for a second is to me unobjectionable and something that should be part and parcel of the way that kind of companies I think are operating. And again, 
I think that it's more and more just part and parcel of what younger generations of employees just assume to be the case from their managers and from the companies that they are working at. And that striking that balance is important. You're right. And even love, you know, love, and I always come down, and maybe this is the right place to kind of talk about it for a second. We spend so much time in our professional jobs. And I would notice early on that a lot of the tendencies that I had in my personal life that I wanted to improve upon or that I showed in my interpersonal relationships with people would show up in some way in my professional life. And that the professional context and the formalism and structure of work was actually something that I could use to work on those issues in a way that wasn't only beneficial for me professionally, but that was beneficial to me just as a human being, period. So maybe in my relationship, just kind of speaking hypothetically, of course, maybe in my relationship with my partner, I get accused of talking too much or not listening enough or being passive aggressive about something. How is that showing up for me as a manager in the business? How can I improve upon that? Because I'll tell you that people I think are able to create a little bit more distance and space actually for self-reflection in their professional life than they're able to do in their personal life. There's just a little bit more, there's a little bit more distance. It's a little bit of a different space. I'm actually being held to account. There's a performance conversation that's happening at the end of the quarter in a way that isn't necessarily true in my personal life, right? There's no performance review. There's no feedback conversation. And to the extent that there is a feedback conversation with my stakeholders, so to speak, in my personal life, that's usually coming at a state of kind of heightened emotional crisis or something is happening that is forcing you into that level of thinking that almost necessarily takes away from my ability to think about it objectively and to do it in a way that it's going to be actionable. Whereas in a professional capacity, I'm constantly or should be constantly thinking about, am I doing a good job? Am I going to get fired? Are we going to meet our goals for the quarter? What is my manager going to tell me about my performance this quarter? How can I get ahead of that? After my performance review, you know, Julio, like, you know, you, you talk too much in the meetings or you don't talk enough in the meetings or whatever it happens to be. By definition, we have baked into this a, uh, a self-improvement process. And we don't think about it as a self-improvement process necessarily. But I do think that, again, the world is getting smaller. I think that employees do want to not have to compartmentalize as much of themselves professionally and personally. And I'm a big believer that the arc of history over the last 10, 20, 30 years has definitely been in the direction of people wanting to, you know, quote unquote, bring more of themselves to work. You know, what, you know, what does that mean? Be their authentic selves at work. Like this is the kind of ultimate like corporate speak that could be, that's only as meaningful as the people who are saying it want it to be? Like, are you actually believing it? Like, do you act like, what does that actually mean? Is that something that we want? 
And I think that really taking the opportunity to think about how work can actually be an actualization tool that allows me to be a better version of myself than I might otherwise be is an incredibly powerful motivator for just showing up and being better. And again, like to the extent that that can cascade and waterfall then back into your personal life, then all the better. And I don't think that that is really a feedback mechanism that I've ever seen discussed all that much. Certainly, we see all the negative effects, you know, people who show up at home and they're taking stuff out on their significant others. And I had a really bad day at work. No one ever talks about, you know, okay, like I had a really good day at work, or even if I had a bad day at work, how am I taking some of that learning and applying it over here and vice versa? I think that more and more history is really getting a little more messy with where things start and stop, right? Like I've got to catch myself a lot when I talk to young folks and in particular, and with the new venture, it's primarily geared towards Z generation and and young people. So I, I do have to talk to a lot of young people, a lot of people younger than me. And I find that they just assume that real life, you know, I still talk about like in real life, as if that were disconnected from your digital life, there is no disconnection anymore between digital life and your personal life or in real life and like meet space as you know, the engineers say or whatever the heck, you know, the, the, the term happens to be, that line is increasingly blurred. And I think that we've sort of just assumed the blurred lines when it comes to professional and personal and we're all on call all the time and we're walking around checking email all the time, we might as well be getting some benefit for that. We need to find ways of kind of harnessing that, I think, that feel positive to people and that are additive to not just company culture, but to culture, period. And so when I do talk about you know love at work or empathy at work or self-actualization at work, like that's kind of what I have in mind. And it's not that we need to be sharing inappropriately or that there's necessarily every job has its opportunities for this level of yogic kind of introspection but i do think that if there's something if there's something in your personal life that is a characteristic that you don't that you want to improve upon you're a procrastinator examining whether and how that's showing up professionally and seeing whether you can work on that in a professional context like that's a really great start. And I think that it just kind of helps. It helps to get through, right? Some of the the challenges of it. And for me has always been something that I could look forward to. And how can I, how can I use this day at work? And how can I continue to improve on myself at the same time that I'm improving as a, as a worker? I love all that. You know, I, I think it's funny. I, I reflect on, as you're talking about that, there's been some situations, I won't go into the details, but, you know, with, with my significant other where, you know, I've said, you know, she's kind of giving me some feedback. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. And actually I have done that at work and I need to sort of kind of think about how to operate a little differently, perhaps. I'm just glad that she and my kids don't listen to this because otherwise they're going to want to set up QBRs and KPIs <laughs> for, for myself. And, you know, I don't need all that, right? Yeah. 
but maybe I do. Who knows? It's funny though, right? Like that, it's something. In that, there's actually there might be a business idea in that yeah. somewhere. There, Josh. Like uh, there's some metrics to kind of like personal life that somebody's going to come up with here in the not too distant future. That's right. Uh, yeah, I've seen all these like personal CB, you know, uh, CRMs and personal assistants and things like that. Maybe it's like a personal, you know, OKR at home sort of thing, <laughs> and you get 360 reviews. And you know, if my dog, she's sleeping over here, but if she could. If she could talk, she'd be happy at least. But anyway, <laughs> so you know, I know, I know, shades. Your new, your new business is at um, an earlier stage. But do you want to give a quick plug on what you guys are doing there, and then, and then maybe how you're sort of thinking about building that business? Yeah, sure. Uh, Given all that you've sort of learned over the years now. Yeah, no, thanks for that. So it's actually something interestingly that I've been working on with my my wife. Interestingly, and that's been it's the okay. first time that we've worked together. So. During the pandemic, Sonali, my wife, like a lot of us, was reading stuff online, seeing how challenging it was to get through the different perspectives that people had on things, and that it really underscored that one article that you happen to read. And again, young people, really, that the one article that they happened that got to them first, or that came from a talking head on social media that they happened to be following because of their position on something completely unrelated. Well, then when that talking head kind of spoke to this issue, you just sort of go along with it regardless of whether that was in their wheelhouse or not. And so Shades was really born out of this need and really a desire that we had for a product that young people could go to, to just quickly get up to speed on what people were saying on the internet. And so we curate multiple perspectives on not just news, but really anything that is of interest to people is fair game for what we talk about in Shades. And you can find it in the App Store by searching Shades News. A lot of the stuff that I used to say at my new hire talk at GitHub is actually completely relevant to how we talk and think about the new venture. So at GitHub, we would talk a lot about the fact that the arc of history was really moving away from either ors to and. You know, it's not that you're either this or you're that. It's I'm this and I'm that. And certainly we've seen that reflected in conversations with young people who are so magpie in terms of how they look at the world and build up their own personal identity. And we would talk to young people and ask them for their views on different issues. And it was interesting that certainly relative to certain somebody my age or an older generation, They'd say one thing that was a traditionally conservative position. The next thing they'd say would be something that was a very liberal position, something that was kind of in between. And they not only didn't follow a lot of the labels that I grew up with, but kind of intuitively did not understand the need to limit themselves by label, period. And that there was much more of this approach of, like, I, you know, I have different hair tomorrow. I'm going to dress a different way, which is also very weird, right? Like when I was in high school, the goth kids dress goth, the metal kids dress metal, the hip hop kids hung out and dress a certain way. Whereas today, it's just kind of this, it's much more mashed up and people are dressing any kind of way that suits them. And like Whitman said, you know, we all contain multitudes. So Shades was really a reaction to that. We've got a TikTok style navigational approach that just kind of feels more, I think, intuitive for the way that young people read information and get caught up with information. And just trying to push the boundaries in terms of what are the paradigms that people think through and 
I think just trying to give people multiple perspectives objectively on the issues of the day and kind of just like a fun snackable format ties together a lot of themes that I've been thinking about for a long time. And that's shades, you know, that's, that's what we've been working on. So I, I love that. And I've been having some similar sort of conversations and, and sort of experiences with my kids, especially my 13 year old. One of her favorite things to get is this publication, The Week Junior. I don't know if you've seen that. It's sort of a... Yeah, my kids, well, yeah, my son loves getting that one. Yeah. So she every comes Saturday or something like that. And she's always like, is it in the you know mailbox or whatever? And so I think, you know, this would be sort of maybe a digital version of that, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. But what's your what's the sort of target market or gener- uh, like age range you're thinking about? Yeah. So it goes down to I think the youngest that we've gotten feedback from users that get really excited about it is around the high school level, really. But if you're consuming information and you're interested in the news, then really that there's no, I think, lower limit for it. We're targeting primarily a college age demographic right now. Like um, I think that we have an entire generation that has been forced to use social media almost as a workaround because of the lack of tooling that speaks to them and that they find relevant to their visual aesthetic, to the tone that they communicate with. So if you download it, you take a look at it. It's lowercase. It's written. It should be feeling like you're getting filled in on a topic by that friend that reads everything, right? That's able to give you, well, you know, the New York Times said this about it. So if I were to text my friend and how people were doing during the pandemic and emailing Sonali for her view on X, Y, and Z because they knew that she was the news junkie culture vulture person. Similarly, right now, it's like, hey, I heard about, you know, what's going on with inflation? What's going on with John Morant? What's going on with anything? You know, boyfriend airs the topic that people that that we were working on today. Like, uh, what's going on with this thing? Well, CBS says this, the New York Times says that, the Atlantic said this, and kind of just like really quickly so that you're able to triangulate on just what it is that's going on. And I think that it's interesting to me that we're now into the second quarter, almost here into the second quarter of the 21st century. But in reality, we continue to consume information in a way that would be completely recognizable to an 18th century colonist reading a newspaper, right? I'm picking up a newspaper and I'm just kind of reading that thing and that we're not able to benefit from all of the information that exists online because it's too difficult to source all of those different perspectives to kind of curate the ones that are reasonable versus the ones that are just flat out clickbait, fake news, whatever, insider articles that are just trying to get you and trap you into clicking on something. And that there really just was a need for a better way of consuming information. And that for me, it really comes down to, like, if we talk about sources of media being biased, the problem is not that any one individual source is biased. The nature of humans is that, you know, I think we're always going to have some level of bias and Certainly, media publications are going to have inherent biases in how they cover things and what they decide to speak to. The problem that, as I see it, is that it's too difficult to triangulate between multiple biased sources, right? And that what it ends up doing is just kind of leading to echo chambers because I, you know, I, I don't have access to reasonable different perspectives on the issues of the day. And so that's what Shades is going after. And I think that what we found, again, is that young people sort of intuitively grok 
and lack the baggage that a lot of older generations have when they start thinking about some of these issues and that they just kind of necessarily just want more rather than fewer sources of information and opinions and perspectives. I love this. I feel like adults need this too, Julio. I mean, I, I've been sort of, so look, I'm not to get into the political spectrum too much here, but I'm a registered independent, right? I've always felt that way. And I, I love Twitter, but like I have to constantly like try to find both sides so I can kind of, like you said, triangulate on like what's actually happening here. Yep. It's hard. It, it requires a lot of active work to do that, right? Too much. It's too much work. I love what you're doing. I think I think this is great. It's too well, much. Yeah. Should, and look, use yeah. I use shades. It's I, I'll check it out. That yeah. I use these days to stay up to speed on what's going on. And so it really is for everybody. But you're exactly, you know, you're exactly right. And I think that when we... You know, when we talk to people around the need for different opinions on what's going on, the tendency is to simply think through, okay, well, you know, I read the New York Times and I'm not at all interested in what Tucker Carlson has to say or whatever. But the reality is, is that most of the time there are different shades of opinion that aren't that far apart from one another. It's an interesting example. So we created a, you know, a TikTok channel to support the company. And that's one of the main things that I've been working on. And it's gone really well. So we take issues that we're doing write-ups of in the app, and we've got man-on-the-street, person-on-the-street style videos where college kids will go around asking other college kids on campus for their opinion on whatever the issues are that we're writing about in the app. And that the tendency is actually not at all. So kind of like what we're talking about, let's say we had an issue on whether women should be taking their husband's last name. What are your opinions on this? And that's an issue that I would imagine fall would fall very neatly within a kind of polarized, you know, ideological line, which is that liberals are going to feel one way potentially, and that conservatives, so to speak, are going to feel a different way. But what we ended up finding was that it was all over the place based on any number of different factors. I'm a feminist, but I'm 100% going to take my husband's name because I hate my dad or hated my dad <laughs> or hated, you know, I had right. this relationship or whatever it happened to be. Like, that's why I'm going to do it. Or I just think it would be cute. Or I would do this for this reason or Y reason or Z reason. And the reality is that people are much more complex and nuanced than just kind of this either or polarity. And there are, there are just different points of view that the internet, I think, has unlocked and that should allow us 